Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, uh, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. Uh, you got both Mike and Sean again today. Uh, we haven't gone solo yet, but one day that's going to happen. You're going to have to one put of up these with days? just one of us. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what it is to be a wilderness rescue professional, because we do get some a little feedback now and again from folks like, what does this really mean? What does this entail? Was this just paramedics who go in the woods on occasion kind of thing? Yeah, so we're going we're gonna to give you a little insight. Or the kids, and I don't mean kids in a bad way, I mean people younger than I. That, uh, that say, hey, dude, that sounds like an amazing job. I want to do that for my career. And it turns out, yeah. like, making a career out of this, kind of hard. So we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And so one of the only caveats we're going to give today is this is based, we'll say, almost 90% on Mike and I's experience and our knowledge. Now, we have a pretty decent knowledge of this and where it's at, but this is predominantly going to be based out of the United States. We actually do have some listeners that are from some other countries overseas and such. And we'd love to uh, get talking with those folks. We've kind of started with one guy and we're going to try and get him back on the schedule and make that happen. Cause we'd love to hear about how folks from around the world are, are, are tackling this as well. Uh, Cause obviously Mike and I are, are a sample of two and there's a lot of this that goes on out there. So, but this is going to be based on our experience, our knowledge of what happens around us and really for the vote, most part, the rest of the United States, just so people have an idea of what happens here. So. The only thing we're going to talk about that's, uh, I guess, the, uh, the only other thing I would comment today is, is again, this is a much more of a freeform discussion with Mike and I. This is a bit of a two guys just pontificating, kind of giving some insights, and we'll see where it goes from there. It's two old guys sitting around talking about stuff. At it's some true. point, this stay off my lawn is probably going to come up because it turns out we're old and broken. So the first thing I want to talk through is the definition of a professional. So there's a lot of language used, especially in pre-hospital care, around being a professional, being a professional rescuer versus a not professional rescuer. And I have a different opinion on the definition of a professional, and I'm, I'm guessing Sean is going to agree with me, but we're going to talk through it a little bit. So first off, does a professional rescuer get paid? And oftentimes, people are going to say, well, yeah, like professional firefighters or professional blah, blah, blah. There's actually a move afoot a little bit, at least in, in our region of the world, in, in places I play, to stop using the term professional firefighter and use the term career firefighter or career paramedic versus professional paramedic. Because in my opinion, and I'm not the one that started the movement, it just kind of happened orthogonally, the difference between a professional and a not professional is whether you engage in professional activities. Are you a lifelong learner? Do you continually t- stay on top of your skills? Do you want to provide the best care you can provide because you're a professional and that's what a professional does. They try hard and they do their best versus the concept of, I got a certification and now I'm just going to keep doing the job. That's not a professional. I don't care if you're getting paid or not. If you're not maintaining your skill set and putting work into being good at your job, that's not being professional. A dedication, right? I'll call it a dedication to the craft. And in that regard, And and we're going to get into the available, quote unquote, jobs, the ability to get paid for this. But a professional rescuer, Sean and I are, in my opinion, professional rescuers. We dedicate ourselves to the craft. We spend a lot of time working on making sure that we're good at the job. 
but we don't get paid for most of our rescue work. I guess this is the time to fully disclose. Sean and I are both, we've talked about this before, but he and I both volunteer in our local EMS systems. The wilderness work we do is as volunteers. The only payment that between the both of us that occurs is I get paid as a part-time supplemental paramedic for a mostly volunteer system because I picked up a side gig doing that because a friend of ours, listener number one, <laughs> uh, recruited me to come help with building that system. But eventually, someday, that job's going to go away because that rural community is going to move toward having more paid providers someday. Like, it could take 30 years. But eventually, having part-time paramedics is going to go away. And that's fine, right? That's just evolution. But I would still call myself a professional rescuer because I care about the craft. I care about the skills. I care about providing good care. And I care about the outcome for patients. I'm constantly chasing feedback from hospitals. I'm constantly chasing feedback on critical patients. That's the definition of a professional, much more than, quote, getting paid. So because I'm sitting here with nothing to do and technology, my thing, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, uh, the definition of a professional. So of or relating to a characteristics of a profession, obviously, engaged in one of the learned professions. And if you don't think paramedicine or EMS is a learned profession, then shame on you. I hate the term. I'm going to tech this call. Quit being a technician, right? Here's the big ones. Characterized by or conforming to the technical or ethical standards of a profession, right? It doesn't say you're getting paid there. It says you're conforming to the technical or ethical standards of profession. Now, in this work, the technical pieces are not just your medical knowledge, but for Mike and I also technical rescue, having rope skills, rescue work. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between rescue and medicine. There is a distinct difference. And then the other one, exhibiting a courteous, conscientious, and generally business-like manner in the workplace. When people say be a professional, it's what they're talking about. And I'd like to say that those of us who are interacting with patients that we're servicing should be acting in a courteous, conscientious, and generally business-like manner. And last one, participating for gain or livelihood in an activity or field or of endeavor often engaged in by amateurs. So we're going to get into this whole amateur versus profession again. And this is where kind of the line Mike was talking about earlier is whether you're paid or not. That is one of the definitions is you're getting paid and those that don't are amateurs. And I would almost say that really almost applies now to a lot of things that revolve mostly in the sporting community, if you will. Even those lines are blurred now. Amateur athletes can now make money. They just don't yeah. necessarily get paid by their athletic organization, right? If you're in the US and you're following any social media trends, there's a particular collegiate gymnast who is raking in the dough on her social media accounts. Good honor, right? Maximize that talent she has. But I go back to the, just like Mike was saying, I don't care if you're getting paid. Are you truly trying to maintain proficiency and up that proficiency and your knowledge level in the craft, right? So for us, we're talking wilderness EMS all the show. So you become a better EMT. Are you becoming a better paramedic, an advanced EMT, park medic, whatever certification is? Are you a wilderness first aider? And you just want to be better at your basic wilderness type first aid skills. Well, wilderness first responder with a local search and rescue team or ski patrol or whatever it is. Are you trying to be better at that craft? Are you trying to provide the best care possible? And if the answer is yes, I'd say you're a professional. The only other thing I might add to your list of definitions or caveats, Mike, would be... Or verbal uh, vomit, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Would also be time invested, right? Okay. So you could say like, oh, yeah, I read some articles. I keep up with my CEs, but I really only do this twice a year, three times a year. How good are you 
at wilderness EMS or austere medicine if you're really not doing it but a couple of weekends a year as a volunteer somewhere. And again, nothing against volunteers. I am a volunteer and I love it, right? That's what keeps me fresh and motivated to keep doing this. I don't have the daily grind of a professional paid person, right? So, but that's it. So I agree. Professional is not about whether you're getting money or not. It's how serious you take the job, how much time and effort you put into being better at it. So, all right, Mike. All right, I support that. Okay, so now that we've defined professional as being not something that gets paid or not, half of the three people that are listening, which is really weird because that means one person's got to cut themselves in half. <laughs> half the people listening are going to quit now because the, the questions we've gotten and the asks that I get often are, how do I do this for a living? Yeah. The stump simple answer is you do something else. And this happens to be a secondary aspect of the job. Now, there are places that you can get paid to do rescue full time. But rescue, as Sean mentioned, we're going to dig in now, is not the same thing as wilderness medicine full-time. I would argue that a lot of combined fire services are both fire and EMS, and the large majority of their work is EMS for most of those systems. Only 90%. It's completely, only, yeah, my bad. It is completely opposite in the wilderness venue. You will probably, if you're getting paid to be a paid wilderness responder, it will be a subset, a small portion of your job to provide medicine in the wilderness, which goes back to maintaining skill set, knowledge, and capability, because when it turns out it's a small part of what you do, it's very hard to maintain proficiency. So I want to toss out a couple of numbers. I don't think these are great numbers, but it's the best I could find in the time I had to prepare for some of this. So how do you pronounce that, Sean? NA, the NAMESCO, I can't, I can never remember. The National Association of EMS Medical something something, NA... EMSCO. I can never remember the name of this agency or the it's not an agency, it's a it's a body of people, but hit me. How do you pronounce it? Okay, I don't know. Okay. So anyway. National Association of (laughs) the NASEM Co. In twenty twenty they did a study and there's about one million, one point zero three million EMS workers or people that defined themselves as being an EMS worker. And give or take, they said there's about a quarter million paid providers. Those paid providers could have been people that uh, work in a transport agency. They could work for a fire service, et cetera, et cetera. But the best data I could find that gives me a balance is about two-thirds of EMS providers in the country, give or take, are volunteers. And that's the U.S. I think that number's probably inflated. There's probably more paid people as compared to volunteers as a ratio of calls run. But this is how people identified in a survey. So I'm going to go with it for now. Well, I think that's pretty accurate, though. Because purely on the EMS side, the places that have paid professional EMS only type things outside of the fire service are major metropolitan areas because they have to have a tax base that can support it. The Mm -hmm. vast majority. And again, if there's some interesting maps, you can go out there looking at population densities in the United States. I mean, there are some states where there's only one, we'll call it legitimate government funded some set of EMS agencies. Everything else is volunteer, right? So. Like if you went to a state like of Montana, the vast majority of the people, because it's so rural, so distributed, these small towns, you're not going to find large career agencies that have professional paid EMS providers. Right? I would so, agree with that. I was looking at, I agree with everything you're saying. I was looking at it from a slightly different angle. Do you consider yourself paid if you're getting paid a stipend or a per call per diem? I don't know. I don't know how the survey was set up, right? There's a lot of fire services that are quote unquote volunteer services that pay for call, right? As a 
cost offset supplemental. Were they considering themselves paid or not? I don't know. I don't know. I, I couldn't find details yeah. on how the survey now, was that, structured. Yeah, breaking that down right. is difficult. Yeah, because a lot of what are traditionally volunteer, yeah, they have a slight stipend. I mean, technically, you and I as volunteers can be paid for our services. Can be paid for our time, right? Yeah, I'm going with pure, like, you're either paid in some shape or form through some sort of municipal funds, whether that's a county or city providing funds to a private contracted agency or mm-hmm. you're a third service independent, just like police, fire, and EMS, or you're part of the fire service, right? Yep. It's funded yep. through that. And I'm calling... Then I would agree. Yeah. Then I would completely agree. Completely agree. And actually, you know who does really good diatribes on this? Not to keep hearkening back to this podcast that I do find to be quite entertaining and educational, but EMS 2020. Like they talk about all the different service types, third service, yeah. fire-based, independent, private, public. And if you're not listening to them, you should, because it's also educational. Like you can really pick up a lot of good data there. But okay. So I'm going to move on from this. What's a professional rescuer? I'm just going to stick with the large majority of people that provide EMS type services tend to be volunteer. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm bringing that up is not to go down a deeper rabbit hole about the fact that most EMS is volunteer. But when we talk about EMS being a secondary skill set, if you want to get paid for doing this work, and I'm, I'm, I should mention, I have no opinion on whether that's right or wrong, right? There, there are two sides of this coin that I'll get into in a little bit about whether search and rescue and rescue in the wilderness should be paid for by the wilderness adventurers, or whether it should be paid for by the state through tax dollars. There's been a as long as I've been doing search and rescue work, there's been a long-standing argument as to whether or not we should be billing for search and rescue or mm-hmm. not. And that really boils down to one logical thing that I don't think we could ever get to a, an actual answer on is if people are billed for their rescues, will they wait longer and make it more dangerous for the rescuers and themselves because they were scared of cost? And that has been the the state of discussion in the search and rescue venue for as long as I've been doing it. I started in 2001. That's it's also. I agree almost 100% with that that logic there. And you and I, I know, have both seen this in the patients we run into, mm-hmm. right? We have had several patients who waited way longer than they should have before calling for help. And it got to a point where it's like they could not go any farther, right? Whether it was yep. walking, hiking, et cetera, it, because they were concerned. And again, okay, to our friends overseas or to the north of the border with your socialized health care, good on you. But they are concerned about a cost. and. Yes. They are often very relieved when we tell them, no, no, we're from the government, we're here to help, and there will be no cost incurred to you by us. Now, I turn you over to a hospital. That's a different story. Yes. And then they're like, oh, oh, that's so good. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you. You know, they're very happy about that. So I think that statement of if you start advertising that if you call for a rescue, we will bill you, people will wait until A, it's either A, too late, and that means somebody dies, or their illness or injury progresses to a point where can become a life, a lifelong disability. You know, like you waited too long and that infection is now bad. Well, you're going to have to lose the foot now. And again, these could be extreme cases. I mean, let's just think about COVID data. How many people were afraid to go to hospitals and ended up dying in their houses because they didn't want to go to hospital because they didn't want COVID? More than one. Yeah, more than one. So, so I agree with that statement. And that's why I think if, if you're going to pay the responders to do this work, you should not be billing the patient or the victim, if you will, right? If you want to recoup some of the costs for maybe medications administered, fine. Keep it 
small. Don't be billing the hourly rate of 42 volunteers or something to that effect, right? That's just, Mm -hmm. in in my opinion, that's not where we should be going with this. Yeah, we may do a whole lot more discussion on on what the cost model looks like, or we may end up having that conversation here. We'll see where this conversation takes us. But Mm -hmm. yes, that that is the dichotomy, right? So to my earlier point, in a traditional urban system, if it's a fire-based EMS program, as Sean kind of quipped, it can be up to 90%, 95% of your time as a firefighter can be spent doing EMS. Yeah. In wilderness, it is completely the opposite. You will oh, spend yeah. 70 or 80 or 90% of your time doing other jobs. The quintessential like poster of a wilderness rescuer is a U.S. National Park Service park ranger. Yep, exactly. Yeah. But the U.S. National Park Service park ranger, the actual, and I will not go down a deep dark rabbit hole partially because I'm not a super expert in this space, but I probably know more than most. Rescue is considered a division of what's called the RAD, the Ranger Activities Division, which includes law enforcement. So most of your time as a U.S. park ranger will be doing law enforcement type activities, and then you will respond to emergencies and rescues as requested. So what does that mean? That means if you want to get paid to be a professional rescuer, And full disclosure, everybody listening, all six people now, I wanted to do that job. Like that seemed cool to me for various reasons in my personal life. I did not do that, but I learned a whole lot about this system because I thought that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a rescuer. I wanted to get paid to go to the woods and rescue people. There is a move afoot a little bit within certain agencies. I don't want to speak for the National Park Service in particular, but within some agencies to move toward having more EMS focused, dedicated individuals. As opposed to saying that EMS is a tertiary duty to law enforcement. And I think part of that is driven by the fact that EMS is becoming more complicated. We have more tools, more toys, more knowledge, more expanded scope. We can do more things, which also means that there's a, again, to go back to my professional comment, a level of professionalism required to maintain that skill set so that we can provide the best care possible. Yeah. Right. Well, I was going to say with the park service, those parks that have, and there's, I can think of maybe three five tops right off the top of my head that have standing, we'll say EMS response sections. Those are very large, very popular, and very busy parks. Mm-hmm. And even most of those, it's a seasonal activity where you're not going to find paid standing EMS professionals, EMTs or paramedics that are there 365 days a year. There's still a, a busy season and the off season for every park in the country. And a lot of those places that have standing EMS responders, it's still it's a seasonal gig and those guys are there for, you know, we'll say nine months of a year. So for most of the, the park visitor time, but those parks are, are few and far between. Most of them, like as Mike said, it's EMS is, is a, I don't know if I'd call it, yeah, it'd probably be down tertiary for law enforcement rangers. And then mm-hmm. for the other, all the rest of the park rangers, those that are certified as EMTs or paramedic, it, it is also a secondary or tertiary response. Whether you're giving a guided tour and you hear about an injured hiker, and now there's some sort of rescue that's going to occur, you're responding as a secondary duty, not your primary. You just gave me a great window into where I was going with this. That's what I do. It's secondary, right? And it just is. And that's just the nature of how it works. I can't tell you the number of young people I've met that say, I want to be a professional, full-time paid rescuer. Sweet dude. But it turns out there just aren't that many, like there are a lot of rescues, but the financial model is not there to pay people to sit around and wait to just do rescues in the woods. All right. Well, when you're offering trail tours and stuff, like it's a secondary dude, but that's more first response as opposed to critical high acuity dude fell off a cliff sort of responses. So I think but, this is where we need to discuss 
rescue vice medicine. Yes. Because there are a lot of, and we're going to keep kind of using the park service as an example here. And this could be, this could be a state park as well. It could be any number of things. So a rescue is essentially not the location because then that'd be the search part of a search and rescue. So the Mm -hmm. rescue part is going out to an injured or ill individual, whether that's an employee or a visitor or whatever it might be, and facilitating their safe evacuation from their location to wherever that might be, a parking lot, an awaiting ambulance, whatever, right? That's part of the rescue. A lot of people, especially in the wilderness environment, tend to equate that to Stokes litters, people being carried, helicopters, rope work, etc., which is technically all in there, right? But just as often, it's getting to your patient, doing that quick assessment, and then just maybe helping them walk out. Maybe they just need a little extra assistance. Maybe they just needed a bit of reassurance. No, you are in fact not dying right now, and you're good to go. So rescue is different than the medicine piece, right? So the medicine piece comes in when somebody's actually truly injured or ill, and they need, whether it's an EMT, advanced EMT, park medic, paramedic, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. they need some level of trained professional medical responder to either evaluate, splint, do some advanced diagnostics, provide analgesia, whatever it might be. Mike and I have had some very interesting medical calls. Not everything for us is trauma. Actually, some of our best calls uh, that have provided us the most fun, if you will, for, for an EMS provider mm-hmm. have been the people with medical calls, right? So we've had this almost a mass casualty because there's three of us that were on duty to do work. Mm-hmm. And we had a bunch of people that ingested a plant that wasn't what they thought it was. And it turns out this plant can have some significant deleterious effects. And we'll actually probably have a case discussion on this one because it's a really good one. We should talk about that one. Yeah. But that wasn't even like that could have occurred. That event, we should do a podcast on it, but that event occurred and was considered a wilderness rescue because it happened in a place that was more wilderness. But that same event could have occurred in somebody's house. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So when people talk about they want to be a professional rescuer, a lot of times that's guys that see the pictures like the guy hanging with a basket from the bottom of a helicopter. I know we use that image a lot. It's actually taken from Mm -hmm. one of our actual rescues. Um, That looked good. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag flight medic. Um, (laughs) Guys on ropes going up and down cliff faces with Stokes baskets, right? That's, that's what gets them into, I want to be a rescuer. It's not the walking uphill both ways with 50 pounds on your back only to get there and find out that your patient does not in fact have a multi-systems trauma set of injuries that it's, oh no, I'm just really tired and I'm breathing heavy and I'm really sweaty. But somebody, mm-hmm. and this has happened to Mike and I both and a lot of other people we know, people make that call wanting to get people sooner so they kind of inflate the issue. And then when you get there, it's like, oh, yeah, cool. No, I'm fine. It's like, (sighs) all right. So you got to understand there's a difference between the rescue side and the medicine side. They can go on at the same time in the same environment, but there is a difference between the two. I just wrote something down while you were talking. You spurred some thought. And there's two thoughts here, and I'm going to wax poetic. We're going deep now, boys and girls. (laughs) Um, I have this saying that I use when I'm teaching that goes something like this. Uh, It varies slightly. But do we do it because we can? Do we do it because we should, or do we do it for better outcomes? And I use that framework to talk about some systems have very robust protocols. My common example when teaching is beta blockers for cardiac problems, right? If you have an undiagnosed, if you have a, as a paramedic, if you have a patient that's got undiagnosed 
atrial fibrillation, which you believe as a, para, a trained paramedic that can read strips and say, that looks like AFib to me. Do you leap right to the beta blockers? Do you grab the metropolol? Are you, are you pushing medications? Or you give it a little fluid and such? Because it could be AFib. It may not be AFib. But are we doing it because we can? Are we doing it because we should? Are we doing it for better outcomes? The better outcomes piece is really what medicine is all about. The reason we do a lot of things pre-hospitally is because statistically, science, whatever the case may be, shows that the... Here's another great example. I'm jumping all over the place. But studies have shown time and again that for compound injuries, the sooner you get antibiotics on board, the better mm-hmm. outcome because you're managing infection as soon as possible, right? So do we push antibiotics because we can or do we push antibiotics because it produces a better outcome, right? And because the protocol says so, it's never a good reason to do it. <laughs> now, why am, I bringing the, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because when Sean was talking, and I've, I've been working in this venue for 20 years, but it just changed right now during the podcast, breaking news, my thought process on the term, my thought process on the term search and rescue just completely changed. It's a three-step process. It's search, care, and rescue. Care is the piece. That's the medicine part. And we can come up with whatever terminology we want. But there's a lot of times in a lot of places where we search for somebody, we find them, we provide basic, like first responder level interventions to try to keep them alive. And then we rescue them. And then we hand them to the providers to actually take them off to a medical care facility and give, get them to the doctor place. The move within the industry, and, and I, I'm not going to say Sean and I are part of this, but I think there are places like Kentucky where they're thinking through more of these things. The early care, the more advanced care early provides better outcomes. That's why search, care, and rescue becomes really important because it's not just about finding the critical patient and then getting them to a doctor. That's some 1960s throw them in the ambulance and drive fast, right? Diesel as a care provision. But really what we're talking about is shifting the model a little bit to find them. Oftentimes they tell us where they are. So that part's done, right? And we'll get back to search teams here in a second care for them, provide the interventions necessary to stabilize the patient or provide better outcomes in the end result, and then rescue them. Get them out of there, get them to the doctor place. Some wilderness expedition stuff, the the care is really the only piece, right? You're you're on an expedition, you need to get Diamox or you got the shits and you need some Imodium, right? (laughs) That's the care piece, but it's still medicine, right? That's medicine. What people often want to do is get paid, and, and I'm bringing it full circle here, Sean. People want to get paid for the care part. But as long as care is sandwiched between the search and rescue piece and is not an independent thing, it's largely gets lumped in the same way. And there isn't a job that is a professional search and rescuer that I know yeah. of. I mean, I'm, I no. know they exist, right? But they're they're with the Coast Guard. They're with yeah. some land management agencies, right? Well, no, I, I wouldn't even say that's... Well, Coast Guard, yes, because it's built into their charter, right? But for right. the land management agencies, I can't think of a single standing, what we'll call traditional search and rescue organization, right? They're all secondary tertiary duties for the SAR piece, right? Excluding those that are some of those parks that have standing EMS responders. Like YOSAR is other rangers, volunteers that come together for a call out for a a specific need, right? They're not just, there's not a SAR team that's just sitting in a building somewhere with a bunch of four by fours in gear waiting for somebody to get lost or injured for them to come out and do work. That's, yeah, I think Yosar might be the one exception. I know there are some rangers that dedicate themselves to that, but they it do. is, again, mostly volunteers, right? It's mostly climbers that well, it's, participate it's, on that. Team. Yeah, I mean, there's the climbing rangers that are there, but those climbing rangers are climbing rangers because they have issues with climbers getting hung up and stuck. Mm-hmm. But aside from that very small couple of guys that might be on duty that day, 
that's still a secondary part of their stuff, right? They're still either a law enforcement ranger or an interpretive services ranger, whatever it is. And that's also, they respond to that. And if that call comes out, they drop what they're doing and they go to that. Mm-hmm. But like at our park, there's not 12 guys that are sitting around in a building with a couple of Suburbans going, hope somebody gets lost today. It's yeah, can't wait to go search. Right. Yeah. And we have lost parties all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, dense foliage, narrow trails that branch off into other trails. And it's their trailheads that four or five trails come together. And if you got on the wrong one, you took your third left instead of your second left, you're now on the wrong trail and you're lost. And we won't even get into some of the other stuff that's absurd that occurs, but right. So these things yeah. happen. So yeah, it's the, typically not a response team that's waiting to go. It's, exactly. It's a tertiary right. job. So, and I, so, so if you want to get paid, like where can you go to get a job? And I made my own list that is probably not complete and Sean's probably going to add to it or he's going to say it's complete. That's it's pretty close. U.S. Coast Guard is probably the closest thing to a full-time paid search and rescue job that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, Just realistically. Under that is, is Air National Guard, right? Because out West, Alaska, places like that, the National Guard does respond to a lot of climber fell sort of calls. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, but the- again, as part of the National Guard, that's a tertiary duty. Like you are not getting paid by the National Guard to be a National Guardsman to sit around and do rescues. It's mostly with any DOD attached sort of function, except the Coast Guard, which technically is part of DOD now, right? No. No, it's Homeland Security. Homeland Security. DOD type jobs, you're going to end up doing the work, but it's really, they almost view it as like training opportunity, skills maintenance. That's exactly how they write them off. Yeah. Yeah. It actually gets budgeted and and costed as a training evolution sort of thing versus a primary job tasking. Yeah. And it's MOUs with their state supporting agencies. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But yeah. From there, if you're west of the Mississippi River, there are deputies, like specialized deputies in certain law enforcement agencies. Oftentimes, it's the local sheriff in the U.S. that is responsible for search and rescue. I will tell you. I know for a fact that Arizona has a pretty vibrant flight program. They have, I think, five or six helicopters in the state. And they have flight paramedics that provide medicine. But rarely are the helicopter-based providers getting off the helicopter and going and doing the searching and the rescue. They're they're doing the care part of my search, care, rescue piece of the equation, right? They are not the ones finding them unless they're flying, I almost said overwatch. It's not overwatch, but flying over overflight, using FLIR, looking for someone to support the act of ground search activities but they are not actually typically paid to hang out and just go find people on foot and then extricate them it's not their primary duty and then from there sometimes maybe state systems fish and game programs may have search and rescue organizations i honestly don't know and then it's you know in the true ground pounder-esque activity it's really land management agencies and it's primarily the national park service yeah most other land management agencies, as I understand, rely on the local sheriff's department or local agencies to provide that activity. And even the park service is very much dependent on volunteers to supplement their ranger staff to yes. execute these activities, except for like a, a few really big parks. That may be an exception, but most of the time it's, it's volunteers. So if this is something you want to do for a living, and I'm, I'm looking at all the 20-year-old friends of mine that have come to me and said, oh, you two wilderness rescue, like, how do I get paid for that? First <laughs> off, except the fact that you're not going to get paid a lot. 
but it's really a matter of getting on with a land management agency or maybe a search of a sheriff's department out west that has some dedicated resources to supporting the volunteer system and providing that work. There are other places. I, I should not be, I'd be nascent to say that a lot of states have supporting search and rescue programs that provide training and supplemental support for the volunteer system. It is not their primary task to go do the work. But I mean, we know the guys in New Jersey. We know the guys in Virginia. Yeah. I've met some folks in North Carolina. I know South Carolina has a program, but it's really in, it's in support of a volunteer cadre of resources to help the state execute their tasking. Yes, exactly. Wow. I feel like that little thing hit a, uh, hit a cliff. Like I just talked about all the things that it isn't. And then I said, <laughs> yep, this is how you get paid if you really want to get paid. And now we're done. So we should yeah. probably just hang up and go home. No. Well, the thing to remember <laughs> though, and I think this is just point of clarification is in the United States, I don't think there is, and this is just for the folks that are wanting like, okay, so what do you really mean? It means that if you want to be paid to do search and rescue, you want to be like, that's what you want to get paid to do. You, yeah. You've got to get in with the national park service. And you got to get in with whatever park you're assigned to and get in with their SAR program. Cause I think every national park, except for a couple of the very urban ones, like the guys at the Liberty Bell aren't exactly having a standing SAR team. And if they are, I'm impressed. Me too. I mean, we know a few of those dudes, so we'll have to ask now because I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you have to volunteer to get on that program. Right. So Mike and I work with some really good rangers that SAR is so far from their job description, but they're very involved in certain programs. They are tech rescue instructors, et cetera. That, they show up at all the rescues and stuff. Or like Mike said, you got to be part of one of those sheriff's departments that has a very well-established and robust search and rescue program. That's not going to be your main job. Your main job is still to be serving as a deputy sheriff in a law enforcement role. But when those calls come, if you're part of that team, then you go out on that organization, kind of like the fire rescue agencies out there that have the national task force designations for urban search and rescue that get deployed stuff, right? You yep. don't just hang out waiting for that deployment to Haiti. You're a regular firefighter and paramedic with whatever agency you're with, right? So, yeah. There is one other thing to mention there, and I don't know the answer to this one. If anybody, if any of our listeners know, I would love to hear the answer. Forest Service fire teams, like wilderness firefighting is a job, right? You can go get a job as a wilderness firefighter. It oh, is yeah. usually seasonal, but you can get a job as a wilderness firefighter. I don't know if those agencies also do. I, I do not know how that works within mm. the wildland firefighting community, whether there's a subset of, I know that they have fireline EMTs, there's yeah, fireline yeah. paramedics, but their primary tasking is to be there in case a wildland firefighter gets hurt. I don't yes. know if those agencies also do supplemental search and rescue as part of a recreational response model. I, I honestly don't know, mm. but if anybody out there does know, I'd love to hear because that might be another path. Yeah. Yeah. That might yeah, be that another opportunity. Be. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you're not out fighting fires, so help us come take care of lost and injured folks. That's actually, yeah, good question. Anyway. I have no... All right. Well, that was fun. What else right. you got, John? I think we've outlined a couple of things, and I think we've found a couple other topics we can use to discuss future episodes. But the big one being is like, yeah, you know, I want to get into this whole wilderness rescue thing. Think volunteer, folks. Sorry to say it, but mm -hmm. it's, for the most part, it's a volunteer gig throughout the vast majority of the United States. Now, I know there are some European agencies that, yeah, you know, there are places that you are a standing wilderness search and rescue organization that's paid for through local and governmental funds. And that's just what you do. But they have a use case that requires these standing teams. Whereas most of the jurisdictions in the U.S., most of the large parks and 
uh, we'll call them open public lands. Yeah, there are plenty of people to get hurt. There are plenty of people to get lost. But there are enough volunteers that cover those things that we're not at a point where we have to have standing paid search and rescue teams sitting around. Your comment there, though, spawned another verbal diatribe. Here it comes. Uh, Johnny B is going to make fun of me later for this because he's the only one that actually listens. Volunteer isn't a dirty word. There's a sea of people that volunteer their time, energy, and effort to provide these skills and provide this level of care. And, and we can wax poetic all day, whether it's the right model or the wrong model. But the fact of the matter is, it is the model right now. I can tell you right now, I know for a fact, because I do the metrics, Sean and I dedicate thousands of hours a year to oh, being yeah. available to providing care to people. It is a passion, right? And we are professionals with a passion. It just happens to be that this passion doesn't pay our mortgage. Yeah, and that's, exactly that's, that's really the difference, right? If you want it to pay your mortgage, it's a different dance. But being a volunteer is not bad. And if this is something you think you want to do in your teens or your early 20s, and you're like, man, I really want to do this. Like, I love it. it seems awesome. But I got to pay my mortgage. Yep. That's also a life choice where you might have to say, I absolutely positively believe in the work and I want to do the work, but it's not going to pay my mortgage. So I got to figure out a way to build my life to allow me to do what I really want to do and also take care of my family. And that is, that is a story as old as time in the volunteer community, especially in the search and rescue world of being dedicated to search and rescue and also finding a way to support yourself. And I'm just going to say this. I think I'm probably going to get some notes from people like, oh, yeah, it's totally right. And some people are going to be like, that's the wrong way to look at it. But there's nothing wrong with that being the lifestyle you choose to engage in. And having a passion and working hard to be an expert in a thing, whether or not you get paid for it, is really the ultimate human condition to happiness and fulfillment is that you're really good at a thing and you dedicated your time, energy, and effort to it. And getting paid for it is just, it's a side benefit, in my opinion. Yeah, And I'm getting all woo-woo now and I'll stop getting all woo-woo. But there isn't necessarily anything wrong with saying, I want to be really good at this thing and I want to, to dedicate a portion of my life or a, a large chunk of my life to being very good at it without getting paid for it. That's okay too. But sometimes in modern society, we get hung up on, if I don't get paid, it's not worth doing. And that isn't necessarily the case. I just made myself feel like an 87-year-old man sitting in a rocker talking about the values of life. But Well, of course, this is going to end up with another small bit of pontification, but that's why volunteerism in the country is failing is because people want to get paid for their time, no matter what it is. The people that are willing to give of their personal time outside of their professional lives is dwindling, uh, especially yeah. for people who like you and I, and a lot of those search and rescue volunteers that we know, because Mike and I, we both served on volunteer search and rescue teams, we volunteer EMS. We know some really, really good volunteers. Most of the volunteer search and rescue teams in this country are very good. They dedicate, yeah, like Mike was saying, hundreds and thousands of hours a year. I mean, I can get on my social media stuff and see volunteer teams all across the East Coast who have recently just completed their Mountain Rescue Association certifications, right? And these are volunteers. And that's not an easy certification to pass, right? You actually have to have skill and proficiency across your team to earn some of these certifications. In our state, there's the state Office of Emergency Management sponsors certifications and you have to dedicate the time and energy to earn those and maintain them. Like even for the SAR guys, there are certain, we'll call them continuing education type requirements. They have to participate. So many searches, so many training evolutions, right? So yeah, being a volunteer is certainly not a negative. And for those that are volunteers and dedicating the time to this work, yeah, thank you, right? You're needed. So keep up the good work. Yeah, please. And thank you for your time and service. And I mean that 
both tongue in cheek and seriously all at the same time. (laughs) To be good at this, you have to put time into it. And to help someone else in need without asking for anything in return is probably one of the greatest things that a person can do for somebody else. So I'm going to stop with all the woo-woo, teary-eyed stuff. But that's the gist, boys and girls. This podcast went off the rails about seven seconds after we started. Uh, but I told you but it that's would. How you, I told that's you how you get paid for doing this. You you do something else, and this becomes a secondary duty for you. And with that, Sean, any last thoughts? Uh, I think that pretty well covers it for this uh, discussion. Okay, well, in that case, I'm going to stop the recording right now. So see you all later. Peace. Word. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram. EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of Wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash Wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.